I have some study notes for you today. Can I get a couple of volunteers to help me pass these out? I think I have 40 copies, so um, if you, ha- like you and your spouse might want to just share, make sure we have plenty for everybody, and if we run out, I'm sure somebody in the back will just copy some more. So, as I was um, kind of putting things together here, um, I just kind of felt like it wasn't fair to just throw this at you without the benefit of something to look at. Because um, I think I think it'll be difficult enough keeping up today, because um, there's a lot of there's a lot of meat on this bone. So so Lord, by the Lord's grace, I'll be able to keep on task here and. Uh, So we're going to talk about the name of the Lord today, the name of God. Now, um, this is really, I think, uh, extremely important, this topic for us, because um, God desires to be known. And He has made it so that there is a way for Him to be known. And there is so much in a name. And uh, if there's anybody who finds significance in a name, it's the Lord God. Now we usually find significance in names. Um, I, I know in the naming of our children, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of searching and researching to prayerfully find the name that that we felt like in the Lord fit the kid, right? That was coming or whatever, and so um, so that was highly significant to us. Uh, in in the Old Testament world, this was extremely significant. The name actually not only spoke to one's uh, perhaps character or purpose, but also was a bit of a pronouncement of what, like a prophecy, really, of their life. And so, like, uh, for instance, Jacob, um, deceiver, you read Jacob's story, it's full of that, isn't it? Um, and so, we, we see this represented in, in the Old Testament, not least of which is when God tells us His name. Now this is so so significant. Um, you you might uh, there are a lot of things that I go by, probably some of them that can't even be repeated in public. But for the most part, there are a lot of things that I go by. One of them you might call me pastor, you might call me preacher. Um, those are really titles, and you might call me those things, and that's totally fine with me. But those are not really my name. Those speak to my role, my place, um, they speak to what I do, um, or my role in your life. They speak to that, but they are not really my name. So, um, I do have a name, and I, I'll introduce myself to you by that name, Todd. And so now imagine, imagine because, uh, let's say you're really, really super old school, and uh, you're really, really concerned that, that you really just do not want to dishonor the pastor in the way that you refer to him. I say old school because it, nowadays it's like pastor doesn't mean anything. It's just Todd, right? I, I don't really care because, you know, this whole thing belongs to Jesus and it's for him. So I don't care what you call me. I really don't. But um, just keep it appropriate. be my only request. <laughs> But uh, let's say out of your concern for me, your concern to make sure you're respectful and honoring of me, you just thought, boy, I'm so worried that I'm just going to dishonor him that I'm just going to avoid misusing his name and I'm just not even going to use his name at all. I'm not going to call him Todd ever again because I'm so worried that I'm going to dishonor him 
in calling him Todd. And so you might call me pastor, you might call me reverend, you might call me minister, you might call me all kinds of things, but you stopped using the name Todd. Here's the funny thing, though, is if I were to introduce myself to you, I would say, my name is Todd. So I'm telling you, this is the name by which I am to be known. If you refuse to use it, you're, you're kind of uh, keeping a little bit of an arm's length between us drawing near to one another. God has made his name known, and over the course of time, in a fear of, of misusing his name, which there should be a fear of that, what has happened is that God's name sort of fell out of being used at all. He would be referred to by many things, titles, roles, um, characteristics, but his name that he gives to be known by kind of fell out of use. Well, God has introduced himself to be known by his name. And we're going to look at that today. And what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the command here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Um, as we're working our way through Exodus and specifically the Ten Commandments. We're going to then look at um, the, some of the names and titles by which God is known by. He reveals himself through these names and titles. And then we're going to uh, look at how God really... God, there's a progressive revelation going on through the Scriptures as we move even from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, there's a progressive revelation of God. He reveals himself. And it's like he, he gives out a, a, a revelation of himself to be known by. He dishes out a, a scoop that he thinks we can digest. And then he lets that digest for a while in, throughout human history. And then he introduces some more. Reveals more of who he is and how he's to be known, and then let's that digest a little bit, so that as we go through the scriptures, we see that more and more revelation of who he is is, is being given to humanity. And we're going to look at how that kind of plays out through the scriptures, and then we're going to look at something extremely important, which I, um, we touched on last week, and that is how... Um, how the Old and the New Testament join as one voice to proclaim the glory of Christ. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but um, throughout most of my life, uh, and I would say probably still, truthfully, to some degree still as I'm learning and growing and God's teaching me along the way, that there's been a part of me that I see the, I see the God of the Old Testament and then I look at the New Testament and I see Jesus. And sometimes I fail to see how it all connects together. Right? How does the God of the Old Testament and Jesus, how does it, um, am I talking about two different persons here? Am I talking, like, how does Jesus fit into this? Or how does it all work together? Well, I'm hoping that today you'll be able to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament, that it is so fastened together, so just perfectly meshed together, that it just screams with one loud voice that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want you to see that in the context of the Old Testament because the New Testament authors set the understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ within an Old Testament understanding, an Old Testament context. That is that the things that happened back here between uh, in, in your Old Testament Scriptures, that they have everything to do with who Jesus is. And I hope that that comes to light to you today. So I'm going to, uh, let's join together and ask the Lord to direct our steps here and then we're going to dive in. Father, as we call out to you today, together, we ask that you would unify us by your Spirit with one unified desire to know you. As you have sought to make yourself known by us, 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to know you. To know you as you reveal yourself to be. Lord, to know you through the experience of each day in relationship with you. Lord, be honored and glorified and Lord, direct my words to represent your words faithfully. Lord, we ask that, Lord, all of this would be glorifying to you, that your name would be treasured among us because you are treasured among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, this is a message that I'll just tell you I kind of approach with um, some fear and trembling because uh, <clears throat> I, really, I really feel like I'm in the middle of the Atlantic on this one in a way. Like I'm in way over my head in bringing to you an understanding from God's word of his name, the implications of that, um, that just, I, I just feel totally in over my head on this. So I'm going to do my very best to walk where I know the footsteps lie and leave everything else to the Holy Spirit to uh, help you sort out on your own. And I'm happy to answer questions if you have any. Um, but uh, I'm going to do my best to step where I know there's already stepping stones. All right? So... Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Now, past, last week, we looked at the first two commands, you shall have no other gods before me, and that uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything um, for, for the uh, purpose of worship. And, um, and we talked about what that means. Uh, if you missed that, you can go back and catch that online. That sermon should be up and going. So to this week, we're on the third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. All right, so we're going to look at, there's, um, I'm not going to do this quite yet, but just by way of introducing you to the idea here, our, our English translation uh, is woefully inadequate when it comes to translating God's names and titles. It just, it just is. Uh, in fact, English language is just bad at this altogether. Like, we love pizza and we love our spouse. Like, I mean, if you're from uh, another culture and another language and you hear that we love pizza and we love our spouse, aren't you scratching your head going, like, the same word applied to two very different relationships there right I hope we're not talking about something on the same plane level of playing here field so we do the same thing sadly with God's names and titles so in our English translation we translate his name by which he has made himself known Yahweh um, as Lord in all caps we translate in English Adonai, his role of authority, lordship, um, or, or in, the, in the New Testament, kurios, uh, as Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Lord, Lord. So we would, if we said, uh, the Lord, my Lord, it sounds redundant, doesn't it? But what we're really saying in the original language would be Yahweh, my Adonai, or my Elohim, Yahweh, my God, or Yahweh, my Master, my Lord. So there is so much in the original language that we sort of miss when, when it gets translated into English. So this, what Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 says, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your Elohim, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Right, so I just want you to see the distinguishing uh, between um, the name of God and, and, and how our English translation sometimes 
translates things in a similar way, and yet within it, there's a distinct meaning that can be lost or a distinct revelation that can be lost. So let's first look at what does this command mean, and then we're going to look more into the names. So what, is the, what does this command mean? Do not take the name of Yahweh in vain. All right, so um, remember last week, one of the things I mentioned about an understanding of God's law in, in, for the Israelites would have been very different than our understanding of our modern law. In that, when we... Um, when we look at, all right, you, you, guys, you guys know what taxes are, right? Anybody ever heard of that? Now, if I told you, you have to pay your taxes, what do you do? You're going to uh, do, your, I don't know whether you do them yourself or you have somebody uh, do them for you, but one of the things you're going to want to know is, are there any loopholes by which I don't have to pay a certain amount of my taxes? Right? That's what we look for. That's kind of a modern understanding of law for us. We, if it's not specifically spelled out to the letter, then we will find a way around it. Well, in the Old Testament world, it was not the letter of the law that was so important, but the essence of the law, the spirit of the law, the meaning of the law. So as we look at the Ten Commandments, keep in mind that you may not see every detail spelled out on what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, but what you should get is the essence of what this means so that you can apply it appropriately in your life. Because when we stand before God and His judgment, there are no loopholes. So there is no, uh, in, a, in, a, in, in the court, in a courtroom in the United States, there are some ludicrous cases that can get thrown out because of little technicalities. Where we know that somebody's guilty and yet, or liable, and yet the case can be dismissed because of a technicality. Well, that is not going to happen as we come before the judgment seat of Christ. No one will escape judgment because of a technicality. It will be the essence of, of what God has brought to us that we are intended to follow. So, as we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, let's, let's try to understand then what that meaning and essence is. It's, it's actually pretty simple. So I really don't actually need to take the whole uh, length of the message here to spell this out for you. It's, in a nutshell, it is, don't misuse his name. Don't misapply his name. Now, there are a lot of ways that we do this, and I'll give you a couple of examples to give you an idea. Um, one of the things that comes to mind immediately, because I grew up um, in, a, in a Christian setting, is, boy, you better not use his name as a curse word. Right? That is pretty much what I thought this was about. That do not take the Lord's name in vain meant don't use his name as a curse word. Now, I still stand by that being very important. But that is a sliver of what this command is representing. So, what, what the command is about is God has giving a, given us his name by which he is to be known. And specifically to be known experientially like you know each other because you experience each other, you interact with each other, um, and also intimately. So God desires to be known experientially and intimately by us, and He has given us His name, and He is God Almighty. And so we are not to misuse or misapply His name in a way that misrepresents Him or worse, profanes Him. So... One of the ways that we have a really bad habit of doing this, both um, just humanity and sadly, especially within Christendom, um, those who proclaim to be followers of Christ, we have a really nasty, disgusting, even evil habit 
of taking our views, our opinions, our desires, our selfish ambitions, and backing it up to try to give it credibility by applying God's name to it. Um, There's hardly a political speech you can listen to where somebody doesn't say, God bless you, or mention the name of God, or reference Him. Essentially, um, what is to be assumed then through that is that God agrees with me and you should too. Let me just say that is, that is such foolish territory to tread. It, 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 is, it is mind-boggling how foolish and inviting of God's judgment that is. For us to arrogantly stand in a place where we tell others that I'm speaking for God And then what's worse is to utter words that he would never say. Or to try to manipulate others into thinking or acting in a certain way by using his name. The religious leaders were chastised for this. The priests um, and the Pharisees were chastised in the Old Testament and the New for doing this. And the church, if we were to listen to God closely through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, we would be chastised often for this very same thing. It's said that in the beginning, God had created man in His likeness, and then man decided to return the favor. This is what we tend to do. In fact, there's an interesting survey that has been done, although we haven't done it here. And essentially, uh, where I heard about it was in the context of a a professor at a Christian college who um, handed out a survey to his students, asked them a series of questions, uh, personal questions about themselves, how they see the world, what they think of things, things they like, dislike, and all of that, things they approve of, disapprove of, took those surveys back, then later handed out a survey to ask them what God was like, and it had many of the same questions. And, and he said it was, it was incredible that the people answered, 90 to 100% of the answers were exactly the same for what they said about themselves and what they said about God. Isn't that interesting? That's what we tend to do with God. We tend to think He is like us. He thinks like us. He relates to others like us. He has the same opinions as we do. Um, That is not the case. We were created in His likeness, not the other way around. And the second command specifically hits on this when we are not to have any likeness of Him by which we worship That also includes us kind of forming God in our own mind to be like we want Him to be. But rather to worship Him as He says He is. Which is most of the time going to come in conflict with who we are. Because we have a different idea about the way things should work. And so the question is going to be, do our opinions and beliefs formulate what we believe about Him? Or is what does what he say inform us about our opinions and beliefs, what they should be. So the third command here, to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain, in uh, here I think is, is um, most directly pointed at the idea of taking oaths and making promises. Um, And Jesus talks about this in the New Testament even, that this is not to be done, to use the name name of the Lord in the taking of oaths and the making of promises and making commitments. Um, But it goes well beyond that to make sure that we never apply the name of God to something that does not accurately represent who He is and what He's about. Um, I... We, we, even uh, as Christians, we can fall, we can be guilty of this, and we really have to be careful about what we pin on God having said. That God said this, or that God is telling you to do this. That's especially a dangerous territory to tread. 
when we start telling others what they ought to do because God says so? Unless it's spelled out here, like, you know, you're in an adulterous relationship, and I say God says you should not be in an adulterous relationship. Now, that's, that's one thing that's spelled out very clearly. But if I said God says you're supposed to uh, uh, take this job and at this location, mm, I mean, I better be really careful that when I'm saying that, I better be 100% sure that that is absolutely what God has said because if not, I have just put myself in the place of misrepresenting Him. We are His ambassadors. And if the president were to send an ambassador to uh, another nation and that ambassador began to speak whatever he wanted to, and yet use the name of the president as the one who is an authority over that message, if that ambassador is not accurately representing his president, that, that creates a real problem, right? The president should not be pleased with that. Sometimes I don't know if they even know what's going on in some of these places overseas, but that's a different story. The point is, when we're an ambassador, the message we bring is not our message. And so to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain means that we hold His name in such high regard because we hold Him in such high regard and we so fear Him that when we use His name, we make sure we use it rightly and appropriately. This is His name by which He desires to be known. It is not a credibility stamp for us to carry around and stamp on stuff that we want others to agree with us on. So we are never to misrepresent him or worse, profane his name by doing something that is even wrong and sinful as if, it, as if we do it in his name and thus rep- misrepresent him to, a, to the world around us. Think of, the, think of Saul the Apostle Paul, he was keenly aware. He called himself the chief of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted followers of Jesus in the name of God. He, he believed or justified his actions uh, that he was doing God a favor somehow. And he was, when he came to Christ, he was very repentant over this because he understood what he had done. This is the type of fear that we ought to have in approaching God's name. However, we also ought to understand that while God is one to be feared, he is also one to be known and loved and cherished experientially and intimately. This is why he tells us how he's to be known. All right, we're going to look at um, pretty quickly here. We're going to go through a list of a few of the names and titles by which God is known, especially here in Genesis and Exodus and leading up to um, John's gospel. Just so you kind of have an understanding of how we have an English translation of these names and titles, but they, they tend to lose some of the unique qualities that come with the original language. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and so um, there, uh, even, even in, in the, um, saying his name Yahweh, um, the, the, there's even some stuff in there you can explore. So for our understanding, um, this is the name given to us, and so let's look at a few of them that we see. So remember, God progressively reveals himself through the scriptures and through history. Okay? The first way that he is, reveals himself is Elohim. Elohim is, um, while it is given to him as, when, when we refer to God as Elohim, he is supreme God, ultimate God. But Elohim in and of itself can merely just be referring to a spiritual creature or being. So the word also gets applied to when, um, like we read in Psalm, for instance, um, about God or God's little g. 
um, there are references as such. Or in uh, Exodus, the, the gods of, of uh, the Egyptian gods, we have Elohims. Now we refer to our God as Elohim, capital E, if you will, um, because he's, we know him to be the supreme, predominant, ultimate, preeminent God. But the word in and of itself is more general. Okay? The next one is El Shaddai. El Shaddai is how he introduces himself to Abram in Genesis chapter 17. And we'll look at that, some of these in more in detail. But El Shaddai, El refers to him being God, like, kind of like Elohim. But Shaddai refers to him being Almighty God, all-powerful God, God of all gods, the King of the gods. So in Abram's understanding at the time, Abram would have been coming most likely from kind of a polytheistic culture. And so God introduces himself. Uh, it's interesting in, in Genesis chapter 17 there, it says Yahweh introduces himself to Abram as El Shaddai. Now the reason it says Yahweh introduces himself to Abram as El Shaddai is because Moses is writing this long after it happens and referring back to this and calling him Yahweh because he is now known by that name, but in Abram's time, he was not. In real time to Abram, he was being introduced as El Shaddai, Almighty God, the God of all gods, the King of all the gods. And so Abram would have distinguished that he is not like the other gods. He is God Almighty. Then there is Adonai, Adonai, which would be more of a title, Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. It, it points to his position, his authority, his place. And so Moses, God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh. But Moses will also refer to him as Adonai, Lord, my master. The one whom I'm submitting my life to. Then, of course, the one that we have come to know through the book of Exodus, he introduces himself to Moses and to the Israelites as Yahweh. That's Lord. We see in our English translation that that is all caps, L-O-R-D. This is his name by which he's to be known. Then when we get to the New Testament, now there, uh, there are a lot of names and titles here that I'm not going to get into, but... Um, these are the ones that direct, most directly, I think, apply to what we're in today. When we get to New Testament, we're going to see kurios, which would be, we can think of it, um, I guess, in sort of uh, a simplified way for us to kind of get our head around it so that we have some understanding. Kurios would be sort of the Greek version of Adonai, Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And then Theos, which would be, again, sort of a, a Greek version of uh, Elohim. Though in the New Testament, it's not referred to just any spiritual being, but God, our God. So that, that gives you, hopefully that gives you some understanding here of, of, of what some of our English translation misses out on. And this is going to be important as we dive into the rest of this here. So let's look at, um, let's dive in a little bit to how did God reveal himself through the scriptures. All right, Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, who? God, Elohim. Okay, in the beginning, Elohim. We have just general creator God is how he's first introduced to us in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 17 uh, verses 1 and 2. Why don't you, um, we're going to be moving from left to right here, so if you want to turn with me, it's going to be kind of some quick page turning, but, um, but I think you can do it. Genesis 17, 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram. Remember, uh, Abram's not writing this. Um, this is being written long after by the inspiration of God. Looking back, and so that we know who we're talking about, he's identified by his name, Yahweh, 
but Abraham in real time does not know him like that. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Okay, so God introduces himself little more than just Elohim that we know him by in Genesis 1.1. Now it's El Shaddai, Almighty God, God of all gods. Okay, now let's keep going here. Exodus chapter 3, which we've covered previously. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God, Elohim, of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? And so God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob has sent me to you. So he identifies himself really in a personal way with their forefathers in having known them and reveals more of himself of a I am who I am, I will be who I will be. The the uncreated one, the self-existent one, the one that doesn't have a boss, the one that can't be manipulated, um, the one that doesn't have to follow anybody else's rules, the one who reigns supreme over everyone and everything. He is who he is. Exodus chapter 34, then he reveals more of himself. Now this is, I think, very interesting to see how God reveals himself and how he is to be known. Now if I were to ask you, who is God? Probably some of our typical answers would be, well, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere present, he's eternal, he's all-powerful. What's really interesting is while God does identify those attributes of himself, when he introduces himself to humanity, oftentimes he doesn't use that at those attributes to express who he is, but rather does so with um, what we might call communicable attributes. That is, attributes that we actually share in common with Him. Though we do it in a very imperfect and often corrupted way, God does that in a perfect way. For instance, God is love. We have the capacity to love. We do it imperfectly. We don't do it as God does it, but it is a quality that we can share with Him. Um, God is patient. We have the capacity to be patient, though we are not patient like God is patient. God is perfect in His patience. God is just. We have a sense of justice, but we are not perfectly just, but God is. There are communicable attributes that we share in common with Him, and then there are incommunicable attributes, those things that are not like us at all. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere present. These things we cannot relate to because they in no way touch who we are. All right? So, but God, interestingly, shares a revelation of himself to be known by, by oftentimes sharing the communicable attributes, those things that we can relate to his faithfulness, his loving kindness, all these things. All right, let's look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. All right, what are we talking about? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, obviously. But in a nutshell, here's what it is. God gave Moses and the Israelites a copy of the Ten Commandments. Moses broke it, goes back to God, and says, I hope that wasn't your only copy. So there's now a request to get another copy of the Ten Commandments. God says he's going to actually give the, the, a new copy to him here. All right, so cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. 
be ready. Um, this sounds like a parent, doesn't it? So here's the other set of keys, like the first set of keys, which you lost. All right, so be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the mountain. And as the Lord had commanded him and took in his uh, hand two tablets of stone, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a Elohim merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, Adonai, please let Adonai go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So Moses refers to him as Lord or my master, my ruler, as God introduces more of himself to Moses. God desires to be known not as that big God that we ought to fear, but He wants to be known for who he is, which is one to be feared and yet one to be known intimately as we know each other. It's very interesting to me that throughout Scripture, there are several, there are are three relationships specifically that come to mind that God uses in the Old Testament and the New as expressions of the way that he relates to his followers. One is as a father to his children. That is a very intimate relationship. It is a very experiential relationship. We, we know that when, when our kid's lip right here goes up or down, we know what that means, don't we? Because we know our kids. Right? And, and they know us. They know that when dad's eyebrow does that thing, just leave the room. Right? They know that stuff. Right? So... Um, God desires to be known in that experiential, intimate way. So father with his children is one way that is uh, represented in the Old Testament and the New. Um, Husband and his wife. That's another relationship that God uses to express the way he desires to be known intimately and experientially. Another one is friends. Look at how God relates here and speaks with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. He is God Almighty, and yet He speaks to them and lets them speak to Him as friend. And Jesus, in the New Testament, we look at the way He speaks to His disciples, and He even says, you are my friends. That's how God desires to be known. Where was I? Man, I'm getting going here. I'm just running myself off the rails. All right. So this is Exodus 34. God presents himself to be revealed, to be known in this very intimate, experiential, relational way. Now we get to John chapter 1. Now this is where your uh, study sheet, your cheat sheet is going to come in handy. Okay. So um, we just read Exodus chapter 34. Now what I want you to see, and this is a beautiful thing that John does in his gospel. In our first few passes of John's gospel, we, we would probably miss it unless we have a pretty firm understanding of especially Genesis and Exodus and maybe Isaiah. Um, if we know Genesis, Exodus, and Isaiah really well, we're going to read John's gospel and go, God has just revealed himself 
in, in a much greater, deeper, profound way than we ever knew. We can miss that a little bit because we don't understand Genesis, Exodus, and Isaiah real well. And so we miss some of that. Um, I hope that you get some of that today. So John 1, 14 through 17 specifically, sounds a whole lot like Exodus 34, 4 through 7. A whole lot like it. Um, Interestingly, John's Gospel opens a whole lot like Genesis opens. So we have this Old Testament context that John is applying to Jesus. In other words, in fact, through John's Gospel, one of the witnesses, which John's Gospel is full of witnesses of Jesus because that's an important thing in in the Scriptures, is for anything to be justified and proven to be true and right, well, from God, it has, there have to be witnesses that, that bear, give a testimony to it. And John's gospel is just full of a truckload of witnesses from the Old Testament and the New, from humanity and divinity. And so we have John's gospel starting off almost exactly like Genesis 1. And then we have here in John 1, 14-17 where he really hones in on who Jesus is, sounding a whole lot like Exodus. All right, so let's look at that. Make sure I have my... uh, My pen was flying everywhere here, and I, I got to where I had trouble even keeping track of where I was. All right, so... John 1, 14, there on the right side of your sheet. And the word, logos here, is is, uh, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, um, logos, in verse 14, um, we have capitalized W, lowercase o-r-d. John has already established in John 1, 1, that the word, logos, is God, theos. So, in, uh, in kind of an Old Testament version of that, we have the word logos, the one now being introduced to us, is um, uh, uh, Elohim. Okay? He is God. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this, uh, I want to stop here just for a minute, full of grace and truth. If you look down there, I made a few notes for you, just by way of kind of helping see the comparisons there, because it, 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 takes, it takes a little digging to really um, begin to put some of the pieces together here. But, so we have, in Exodus, Yahweh presents himself to Moses by descending in the cloud and being present with Moses, Right? In John's Gospel here, verse 14, we have the word, Jesus, becoming flesh, descending in flesh to dwell with mankind. So we have um, Jesus presenting himself in a similar way as to what's said in Exodus 34. Now, as we continue on here, that um, there is a, um, it says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So there is a reference here in John's Gospel, actually right off the bat here, to we have seen his glory. So there are those disciples who will testify, we've seen him. We've seen Jesus and the, his glory. We can testify to that. But he also, in verse 15, introduces another witness, and that's John the baptizer. John who bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John's Gospel uses two witnesses here to back up the glory, to give testimony to the glory of Christ. Look in Exodus 34. When the Lord pronounces His own presence, He says, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, twice. Why? Why twice? Because you better take notice of this. He's pronouncing His name. And his name points to his glory. So we have twice here 
the pronouncement of Yahweh's glory in his meeting with Moses. And then in John here, in John chapter 1, we have twice witness to the glory of Christ. All right, so here we go. Then full of grace and truth there, see in verse 14. All right, the words there are full of charis and aletheia in the original language. A lot of original language here coming, coming at you. Uh, it, I, I find it very important or else I wouldn't throw it at you. So um, I heard one guy say that um, when it comes to the original language and preaching, it's like underwear. It's great for support, but you don't have to show everybody, right? In this case, I think um, the original language has something important for us here. So grace and truth is charis and aletheia, grace and truth, okay? We look in verse 6 in Exodus chapter 34, what does the Lord abound in? Steadfast love and faithfulness. The words there are hesed and ameth. You know what those more literally would translate to? Goodness and truth. Okay? So we have a very strong likeness here to what John is saying. And, and make no mistake, there's a reason that John's gospel sounds similar to Genesis and sounds similar to Exodus it's because John knows the Old Testament Scriptures. And he wants us to put Christ in the context of the revelation of God through the Old Testament Scriptures. Don't miss that. John is not just writing... Well, we look at this and we go, I don't know. I mean, I can kind of see it. But no, don't, John intentionally says it this way. Because he wants you to make that connection. All right? He does it all through the Gospel of John, if we have eyes to see it. So then we have um, verse, uh, verse 16 of John's, John 1. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, charis and aletheia came through Jesus Christ. Interesting that he throws that little line in there about the law of Moses, isn't it? Why? Because it's connected to Exodus where God gives his law to Moses. God gives his law to Moses here. Remember the second set of tablets here and introduces him, tells more of himself to Moses, reveals more of himself and reveals that he is abounding in goodness and truth. And then when Jesus is revealed to us, there's a comparison made to the giving of the law of Moses, but grace and truth, charis and aletheia come in Jesus Christ. Wait, who else brings an abundance of goodness and truth, of grace and truth? Oh yeah, that's Yahweh. Moses' Adonai, Lord. Are you at least beginning to put the pieces together here? This is just one little example. I mean, this is, you're going to find stuff like this all through the New Testament as you grow in your understanding of the old and have an understanding that the New Covenant fits in the context of the Old Testament. The, the revelation of Jesus Christ is set in the context even of the Old Testament Scriptures. Your brain is going to explode the more you understand of this. And here is the really, um, there's something so profound in this that God gives to us. John's Gospel re reveals Jesus in such a way because Jesus is understood to be the very same one spoken of in Genesis 1, the very same one spoken of in Genesis 17, the very same one spoken of in Exodus 3, in Exodus 34, very same Lord, same Elohim, same El Shaddai, same Adonai. This is your God. Now, in case you're still not convinced, John chapter 8, Jesus says they attempt to stone Jesus. Do you know why? Because he very, in their language and in their culture, he explicitly told them, I am El Shaddai of Abraham. 
I am the God who introduced himself to your father, Abraham. That's me. And they were going to stone him for it. They understood that Jesus was saying, Jesus is making a direct connection to, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament Scriptures. If you have reverence, when we go to the Old Testament Scriptures, we tend to look at Yahweh and we go, should I even say that name? Right? But then we get to the New Testament and we throw Jesus around like, like Kleenex. Like, it's just, you know, like such, so common for us. One and the same. This is your God. Exodus 20, verse 7, about taking the name of your God in vain, it is speaking in the context there immediately to the knowing of Yahweh, but in the overall context of all the Scripture, is speaking to how God has revealed Himself and the names by which God has made Himself known uh, very powerfully and way more prevalent than any of his other names is Yahweh and Jesus. There are three things I want to leave you with here. One, God is not like us and we don't know him beyond what his created world tells us. Apart from scripture, um, we, we, the only thing we can really know is stuff about him through what we observe in the created order of things. It's powerful stuff. It's enough to make us feel awful small and fearful of him. But nonetheless, it's stuff we can know about him. Like we can know about somebody by reading about them in the news, right? We don't know them. We just know about them. But here's the second thing. He may be known and desires to be known by us. And he's introduced himself to us with a name. Yahweh in the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament it says a name which is above any other name. Jesus Christ. And then the third thing as we consider Applying Exodus 20, verse 7, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. The third thing I want to leave you with is to cherish His name because you cherish Him. Don't misuse or misapply His name in any way, shape, or form. Don't don't use it in any context that is inconsistent with who He reveals Himself to be. You don't need to be fearful of using His name he wants you to know him by that name. Just don't like throw it around like it's another meaningless word. It drives me nuts when I hear words like epic or awesome used to for things that are not epic or awesome. Right? So let us preserve the name of God to be used in its appropriate place to represent him his attributes, his thoughts, his judgments, what he has actually said. And we cherish his name, not because it's just like, um, well, I can't take God's name in vain. Why? Because you love him. Because you want to honor him. Because you know him and you want to cherish him. Now, I love my wife. I don't go around using her name as a curse word. I also don't go around using her name to represent things that are not her. I try to be very careful about what I about the words I would say came out of her mouth. Like I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent her because I cherish her, I love her, and I value her for who she is. And so I don't want to tarnish or profane who she is by misrepresenting her. That's just a little glimpse of how we ought to be towards God. Philippians chapter 2, turn with me there. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to leave it right here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Who? Who is him? Jesus. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just a little note there. Remember all these names and titles that we looked at? Jesus is his name. Christ is his role, Messiah, King. And Lord is his place and position. Like Adonai in the Old Testament scriptures here is Kyrios. Catch that. That he is here called in Philippians that Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, is Kyrios. Where throughout the rest of the New Testament, you're going to see Kyrios applied to God, Kyrios applied to Jesus as Lord to the glory of Theos, the Father, God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord, the triune God in the New Testament Scriptures, and He's given us His name. He wants us to know Him. It just blows my mind. I hope I... I was, I'm, I'm really, even now, as I'm just finishing up here, I'm so concerned that you didn't catch at least some of this. Because I want, I want you, your heart, mind, and soul to just be rocked by the idea that the God of the universe, the God who will reign as judge over all, the God who is king of all gods, the God who is uh, um, the one who will be the last say of anything, has said, I want to be known by you. This is me. This is what I'm like. And this is how I want you to know me. And he's shared with you and me his name. I hope that's not lost on you today. That Jesus is the Lord of all. And Jesus gave his life for you. And Jesus wants to be known by you like you know your father, like you know your spouse, like you know your good friends. If you don't know him like that today, I would encourage you to spend this week giving some real serious and deep thought to what John says in his gospel there in his opening chapter about who Jesus is and how he desires to be known by you. He's telling you who he is right here. And asking you to trust him and walk with him. And for the rest of you who have given your trust, your faith to him, um, know how much and deeply he desires to be known by you. Lord, we come to you with thankfulness and gratefulness for you are God of all. Yahweh, our Elohim, our Adonai, you are El Shaddai. And we worship you for all that you are. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in goodness and truth. And you came from heaven to earth to become like us in flesh, to pay the penalty for our sins, to take on your own judgment against our sins so that we might know you for who you really are. Our gracious and loving God. Lord, help us to know you. Draw us deeper into relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's a wonderful thing to be. Um, before I give you a last word, does this look familiar to anybody? It was found outside. If it does, uh, it was found right out here, I think park, little parking lot over here. So I'm going to leave it right here. This is the phone which you broke. I am not replacing it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So John's gospel opens. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with Theos, and the Logos was Theos. Okay? Now listen to how John's gospel closes. Um, with, All right. So this is known as the Confession of Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and this is after Jesus' crucifixion, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My curios and my theos, my Lord and my God. If there's anything you hear from John, it is that Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament and He stands before you today to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life, and to know you and be known by you. So call out to Him today and begin to walk with Him for He is faithful and abounding in grace and truth. Lord, bless and keep you today.